Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast that speaks to people at the forefront of change. Never underestimate the power of a conversation to reframe how we think, help us form an opinion, and we can all be part of the change process. My guest today is Fiona Collins, Network Coordinator of the Changemaker Schools Programme run from DCU. The network was originally started by non-profit Ashoka, an organisation who build and cultivate change through institutions and cultures for the good of society. Fiona was principal of an inner city school at the time who transformed their academic results and the behaviour of the children by introducing empathy-based practice. This led to them being recognised as a changemaker school and they joined the network. With the overseeing of the network moving to DCU, Fiona became network coordinator where she recruits and works with schools across the country, leading with creativity, innovation, teamwork and empathy. There are 19 schools in the network currently and it grows every year. Changemaker schools believe children have the capability to have a voice from primary school onwards and they foster an ethos of empowering them to believe that they can make a difference at community level and beyond. Fiona contacted me when she saw there was a podcast of the same name and after a few conversations I realised we are kindred spirits fascinated by the power of language, belief, empathy and ultimately change. Fiona's enthusiasm is infectious. She sweeps you up in her passion for this project, which she lives and breathes. I spent the most incredible day at the DCU Changemaker Schools Conference at the end of March, where the schools were awarded, talked of their work and came together with a range of speakers that was just really really inspiring and hopeful at a time where I think the world needs it most. In this episode we talk about her time as principal, the lessons she learned, the inequalities which exist within our education system, the importance of empathy and how the future is now and the platform of education is such a powerful resource. And I started the conversation by asking Fiona about her start in the education system and her time at that inner city Dublin school. So I almost in a way fell into teaching. I really wanted to be a social worker and very specifically, I have very strong memories as a child of wanting to work in prisons as a social worker. And when I look at what I ended up doing in teaching or the type of career I had in teaching, it very much would have linked into the issues or the problems that would often be associated with poverty that would lead children and students or individuals ending up within the justice system. So I think that it kind of came in full circle. And then I went into a classroom and 
the first class I had was this fabulous teach uh, second class in Tala and I fell in love. I absolutely fell head over heels in love and I knew this was the place for me because I was in a space and teaching and classrooms are very relational spaces. It's all about the relationships that you build and the lives that you can impact and the lives that you could change. And I was very much drawn, I suppose, to the socioeconomic context of that class and where I felt that I was best placed to be in order to activate some sort of change. Before I left college, I got a job and I got a job in what was then a very small inner city senior cycle which means the children were all aged between seven and twelve boys school a christian brothers school in the heart of the liberties in dublin eight and it used to be called uh, frantic street and it was called frantic street because they found it very hard to get teachers that would be able to teach the students that were in there and i started there and i loved it absolutely loved it But I had very, very formative experiences. I was extremely young. And the first class I taught, uh, most of the students couldn't read or write. And they couldn't read or write because they hadn't a teacher that lasted longer than three months. So if you're dealing with a classroom of students that are 11 and 12 years of age and most can't read or write, it's a very challenging place to be because those students are extremely marginalised. They're within a system that essentially they're like a fish out of water. And what I found out subsequently was a lot of those students ended up uh, in the justice system or uh, in very extreme poverty-related circumstances. And I suppose I felt that I had done the utmost for those students at that time. I delivered the curriculum I was expected to deliver. I had really done my best in terms of what education I could give. And then when I found out future prospects of those students or what happened to them I was like okay something needs to change here what we were doing then didn't work and I had a very very uh, specific experience of that and I always taught the older students uh, in the school and obviously when you're dealing with older students of all boys there are often issues that are behavior related and can be quite aggressive and what I witnessed uh, during those years and how I experienced education but how I saw students were impacted by poverty really really drove me and really really gave me a passion and a purpose to my work and that passion and purpose was we need to do something now these students are with us for a very significant time in their lives we have the opportunity to make change and what you find is it can often be quite difficult because when they are socioeconomic issues it's very hard for the school system to break that down but there is massive opportunity. And I suppose I would have learned that then when I became at school principal of the school. Talk to us a bit about that. At the time, the kind of national policy around managing behaviour was a little bit uh, draconian and it was a bit consequence-based. So if something would have happened in the school, um, they would have gotten a yellow card, right? So for example, uh, X happened and the parents would have to sign it. And then if you got three yellow cards, you were suspended. And there was this kind of culture, you know? And it was all about rules, rules for this, rules for that. You didn't walk in the corridor. And inner city schools, some of them are quite large, but my school um, is really, really small and have a very, very small playground space. So they're in classrooms. It's an old Christian Brothers building, right? So the classrooms are 42 metres squared and new, new builds now are between 80 and 90 metres squared so you're in a tiny classroom and you're coming out 
into a really, really small playground. So they were just quite pent up and there was a lot of energy. So what was often happening, what often was happening was issues that were quite aggressive in the school playground. And the process at the time was that students were sent into me and I dealt with it. And when I was dealing with it, after a while, I was kind of going, and it was just like the penny was dropping, uh, as it often dropped in certain ways when you're kind of pushed into situations where you're kind of drawing on your innermost beliefs that there's something absolutely wrong here. So the students would come in and they would be extremely, extremely aggressive. And then they would go from extreme aggression or kind of heightened emotion to being really, really upset. And what I found was when I asked them what happened and how were they feeling and how were we going to sort this out, they found it really difficult or they didn't have the language or the tools to express what it is that had happened, how they were feeling and how they were going to repair the situation. And I was like, okay, this is where we need to start because there's something deeper going on here other than whatever that issue was in the schoolyard. We need to look at What's causing these problems? What is the what are the roots of these issues? So how can we prevent them before they escalate? When someone is triggered in some sort of way in a situation, how do we what do we do there? And then if something does happen, what do we do around it? And we started very, very simply with emotional literacy. And I know you saw my TED talk, so I have a mirror outside my office and it was and all the emotions around it in a mirror. I used to be telling them to kiss the mirror and tell themselves they were great, and did they see an emotion there that they felt, and all this kind of thing. But we started with articulating how we felt, and when an issue arose, discussing it, okay? And then over the course of 10 years, we almost had a culture shift in the school, and it became what is now known as an empathy-based methodology program. But at the time, we didn't have that language around it. We were basically addressing the contextual needs of our students. So there's a lovely term of leadership called uh, culturally responsive leadership. So we were looking at, okay, what was coming in here and how can we support and how can we help and how can we act in a preventative way? So we developed this entire culture and it was an entire culture around talk therapies. We brought in art and play therapy. We really looked at the learning needs of students because often you will find uh, the root of behavioural issues or incidents that happen because children aren't able to access what it is that's going on in the classrooms. We worked around that. We did very soft things like friendship skills, um, you know, working on um, building empathy and different things like that in very kind of localised way, like we would have done drama around it and brought in people in and around that. We also worked very hard around uh, working with Student Voice. We were one of the first country, uh, schools in the country to set up a student council. And we kind of opened up uh, the whole school to an entire new way of looking at education, an entire new way of looking at children that was very, very much based on the local. It was based on what students were dealing with. It was based on what it is we were experiencing at the time. And in tandem with that, and this is something I'm really, really clear about, you can only work with students like that if you're working with the teachers like that. So if you, it's really important from a leadership perspective to give students um, agency, but also to give teachers agency. You can't expect students to be empowered by teachers if teachers don't feel empowered in their workplace. But also there was an understanding that this could be a challenging place to work because there was a lot of trauma 
there was a lot of issues related to poverty. So we brought in people to work very soft stuff like mindfulness and we did yoga and we had kind of an understanding there kind of looking after well-being. But we also had high-end people talking about issues like vicarious trauma. And we set up a culture amongst ourselves of support and of openness and about talking about things and not brushing things under the carpet that were really serious that were going on because you felt that maybe you were a failure that you couldn't do your job. And what happened then through this was... We changed, we created a culture of leadership with the students. So we had all these different um, groups and modalities and students would come up and they would set up their own groups. They were often to do with issues and concerns in the schoolyard. But we developed the leadership of the students. And I really realized that when you support agency and when you support empowerment and when you give students the tools and when you make things relatable and when you create a culture in which students feel that they are part of and they are co-owners of, that you see real change. And we saw our school, and I say this, and I, you know, I use the word happy and I'm not, I'm not a great fan of the word happy, but students were happy and teachers were happy, you know, and for, for me to have that, to know that was so, so important. But this work then, we were recognised and affirmed as a changemaker school for this work. And um, and it was very it was a pretty rigorous process to be recognised as a changemaker school. And we were recognised with another four changemaker schools. And I met the other four schools and I thought for the first time in my whole career, I finally met my tribe. Because even though they were working with a different demographic or they had different challenges, they had the same view of education and education as transformation. And how do we provide the best experience for our students and the best experience for our teachers in which to create that change. And it's really interesting that you had that pull towards social activism. You said you had that that fire, you wanted to work in prisons, and yet you still ended up helping the issues that you had wanted to, except you went all the way back to the start to try and stop them happening in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll often find students, um, uh, teachers and teachers that go into what are considered DESH schools in Ireland. So their schools, DESH in Irish means opportunity, but Irish schools are kind of banded based on socioeconomic class. So you often see teachers that teach in DESH schools, they have a passion and a drive for social justice. And obviously education is such a key space in which to address issues of social justice because you're faced with them on a daily basis. And if you don't have a passion and drive for that, or you don't see a sense of purpose in your work, which is breaking these cycles of disadvantage, then they can be very challenging places to be. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible if you don't have that instinct and you will find lots of teachers have that deep instinct. Socioeconomic inequality is obviously huge throughout the world, but talk to us a little bit about the impact of it in our education system. What is the trajectory that the statistics show of somebody who is in a disadvantaged area when it comes to their education and their opportunities? So education is a really interesting space in which to understand and analyze inequality. So Schools and education, while they're spaces for equality to be realized, they're also sites of reproduction for inequality. So there are so many academics working in this space and working to see ways in which this can be bridged. And there's 
theoretical pieces being done with this throughout the years. But essentially, inequality is kind of broken down into four different domains. And there's economic inequality, which which persists in school. And that is the fact that school is expensive. It costs money to buy your uniforms and it costs money to go on trips and it costs money to engage in the education system. But what's also happened um, when you look at inequality in education, so we have a neoliberal economic model and essentially people and students are seen as economic capital. And if you look at global policy directives, which we are very, very influenced by, um, here in Ireland, um, the OECD is very instrumental when looking at education through a neoliberal lens. And the OECD does what are called PISA studies every year. And PISA studies are, are the program for international student assessment. And what they do is they look at the maths, literacy and science of the 38 richest countries in the world and they ascertain the rankings um, of each country within that domain. And you would be surprised to see how well Ireland is doing in some domains. So we ranked 12th out of 38 of the richest countries in OECD, right, in terms of how children are doing, in terms of children's livelihoods, in terms of children's experience of the world. But within that Uh, ranking, we were sixth out of 38 in the world in education. So our education in terms of what we're measuring within the OECD, which is literacy, numeracy and science, and what they're valuing within that domain, and going back to that neoliberal point that I just made, Ireland is doing so well, sixth in the world. But when we look at mental health, and we look at well-being, Ireland is ranking 26th out of 38. Okay, so we're doing very, very well in some areas, but very, very poorly in other areas. And if you look at overall health, Ireland is doing Ireland is 17 out of 38. So when you look at equality within that space or within that domain and you're looking at what is valued and if what is valued is our children and students as economic capital or productive citizens or flexible and mobile, then we're doing quite well. But if you look at what is valued as what is a good childhood, which is what the UNCRC would advocate for, or children's rights and well-beings, or children having a voice, or children's mental health and well-being, we're ranking really, really poorly. So what we have in Ireland is we have an equality of opportunity model. So this is the idea that If we give everyone the same resources and opportunities, everyone will have the same uh, means to do well. Okay, so we can pump load the money into the into disadvantaged areas. You can provide all these initiatives. You can provide school meals. You can provide everything. So then everyone is equal across the board, and then everyone should have equal access to third level education. But what we've seen is that is not the case, and you only have to look at. What happens in the media when we talk about the league tables, when the Leaving Cert results come out and we see that the more money and resources that are being pumped in at the lower level, the more money and resources are being pumped in at the upper level. And what we often use within that is the example of Irish and music for the Leaving Cert. So the vast majority of the Irish exam and the music exam are the practical piece and the oral language piece. You are only going to do well in Irish, if you're going to the Gael Talks, if you're going to Gael Skull, or if you're getting grinds, which costs loads of money, 
you are only going to do well in your practical exam, in your music, if you're going to music lessons, which costs loads of money. So it's this idea, and we saw there was a big push about the league tables in the papers recently, where it's still the private schools that send, that get the most points. It's still the white middle class students that are going into the higher level uh, courses in, in after their leaving search. And that's why they call it the points race. But it kind of all boils down to this economic uh, inequality piece of which the OECD have have a very firm hand in because the more productive the citizens are, the more money is created. There's other domains then when you're looking at equality and it's the sociocultural piece. So what's represented in schools? So if you look at the curriculum, for example, um, are ethnic minorities represented within the curriculum? Are travellers represented within the curriculum? How is gender diversity represented within the curriculum? And it's this idea that it's a very particular identity that's supported and valued within the curriculum. And therefore, there's a psychic impact um, and a marginalization when you're not represented within the curriculum or within the school. And a really interesting example of that is uh, representation within the teaching body. And there's tons of research on all of this, but most teachers are white, female and Catholic. And they all were educated in Catholic schools because 92% of our schools, our primary schools, are Catholic schools. So if you don't have representation and diversity with whom we work with in schools, with whom is teaching the students, there is that lack of representation and that's causing marginalisation and a psychic impact. Then there are other domains within that power. There's massive inequalities in power with school. It's, It's in school you first learn about power. You know, you learn who has the power. You learn who doesn't have the power. Uh, And when you look at children and children's voice, children do not really have a voice in our schools. And if they do, it's often very tokenistic. And this is something that I work very closely with. Just going back to kind of global policy, and I know I mentioned the OECD, the UNCRC, uh, which is a human rights uh, declaration in support of students, they very clearly state in Article 12 that children have a right uh, to express their views in matters that pertain to them. And more often than not, it's very, very challenging for schools to really incorporate student voice in a way that's not perceived as tokenistic. And we would work very closely to encourage schools and provide schools with the opportunity in which to do that. So education very much, as we know, is not neutral. It's an extremely political space. And education in schools, they are very much driven by global policies, which impact national policies, which impact leadership practices, which impact teachers' practices, which impact children's practices, and which impacts overall children's rights, well-being and identity. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what are the skills a changemaker needs? Well, this is, you know, with my passion project, I live and breathe this, Claire, right? So what we do is a change maker in a change maker school is someone with the skills and confidence to lead change in their home, school and community. So this is our central idea. And it might seem simple, but it's not. And it's an extremely powerful idea. And the big key word there, of course, are the skills. So what we define the skills are empathy creativity, leadership, and teamwork. So we work with schools that have, first of all, been identified as creating systemic change in education. So there are schools that, and I keep going, they're thinking a little bit outside the box, but they're working with their community. They very much have change leadership or traits of transformational and change leadership in their school. They encourage student voice and innovation. They encourage distributed leadership with all of their teachers. And so they they are brought into um, our network because they are already doing these things or they are already thinking about education in this way and going back again, education as a space for transformation and change. So these schools already already identifying as this so schools then what they're expected to do is to kind of almost branch their work within the four pillars and then we work together around certain areas of those pillars so why is empathy so important so empathy is seen as one of the 21st century learning skills so when you when you um think about the future, and I know you often hear people saying this, that we're educating our students for jobs that don't exist. So there's no longer this notion that you go to college to become X, Y, and Z. It's all about your skills, right? And when we look at what are the 21st century learning skills, empathy is one of them, as is creativity, as is leadership, and as is teamwork. And critical thinking is core to all of this. And empathy is critical thinking. And empathy in itself is absolutely quite, it's quite subjective and it's quite broad, right? So what it meant for me in my school uh, in terms of what it is that we needed to do, that was very much based on my own research. So when I began to look deeply into the issues that were presented for my students, they were related to conduct disorder emotional behaviour disturbance. And they were also, when I was reading about the trajectory of students that were diagnosed with these difficulties, the word empathy kept coming up and the teaching of empathy kept coming up. And I felt, okay, if we bring in empathy and this empathy-based methodology program and we bring in a culture around empathy, and it was it was very much linked in my situation to behaviour. So how do we have empathy when we're dealing with these situations? You know, you can simplify it as, you know, what's it like standing in someone else's shoes? But it's empathy for oneself. It's how does one, one understand oneself? How does one understand the people around them? Um, that was how we developed a culture of empathy because they were the needs that we had. But a culture of empathy exists very differently in different situations depending on their needs. Like one of the schools I work with, they have developed an entire uh, international curriculum where they work with Cambodia and they fundraise for Cambodia and their teachers go out and they uh, train up teachers in Cambodia to teach with 
the school and uh, this other school in Cambodia have this massive partnership and they teach their students about global citizenship and they use empathy as the key skill when teaching about global citizenship. But I was in this absolutely amazing school last week. Oh, my God, I'm still I'm still so warm after it. And it's a school in Galway, Desh School in Galway, and they set up a sea school. And with the Galway hookers, uh, which is a traditional Galway uh, fishing boats, and one of their teachers, Clef Fury, she sailed to the Antarctica and she linked up with the Galway hookers. And the students, over the course of a year, and their actually their entire school lives, go out on traditional fishing crawler boats in the Galway Docklands. They learn uh, how to fish, how to sail, how to tie knots, how to read maps, uh, they learn about marine conservation. They learn about marine life and biology. They also, each class gets the opportunity over the course of two years to build a traditional fishing boat and they go out and they launch that boat and they sail it. That's empathy, you know? So it's the lived experience of empathy. So they're using the environment around them. They're having a very experiential learning experience, but they're developing a lear- uh, an empathy for the environment, an empathy for climate change, and empathy uh, for each other in and around. And people could be listening and saying, oh, well, that's fantastic. Look, they're getting out into the sea and isn't that all lovely for them? But what difference will that actually make? And to be going in a primary school level um, and, and focusing on building the change makers of the future is a bit idealistic. What do you say to that? So it's very much um, not about uh, masses of students going out thinking they can change the world, right? What it is, is engaging the world to change the world. So engaging students now to learn in context in order to change the world. So if you look at the issue of climate change, right? And just as you're talking about there, they're all big words, climate justice, climate change, not my problem. Okay, but if you're engaging with the world and you're out there and you're looking at uh, you're working on the sea and you're seeing pollution in the sea and how that's impacting on marine life, you're engaging with the world. You're understanding how the actions create that damage and how to prevent that is more it's, it's addressing issues of climate change, you know, and it's because and just as you're saying there, everything sounds lofty, you know. It all sounds kind of idealistic, but when you're engaging students in their current context, in their current worlds, in ways in which to change it, they will see themselves experientially through the lived experience of doing C-School or the lived experience of engaging in a restorative practice circle, what it is that needs to be changed. Because no we have moved away from this notion of chalk and talk, of delivering, of telling people what it is that they do. How do we empower people to make those changes themselves? And what does that look like? For that school in Galway, the you know, the sea is 15 minutes from the school. So why not use the sea? Why not use the sea as a, as a space to learn? You know, and it, it brings away from traditional notions of schooling. And I think that's another thing that the pandemic has been great for. And I see very much with the schools that I work with. They're all gone outdoors. Fire schools, fresh air clubs, uh, across the board, in particularly in schools where that would have been difficult before in terms of time, all those kind of, you know, in a way, excuses um, have gone out the window because people are saying, you know, we needed to get outdoors and now they're bringing all this outdoor learning. And again, that's bringing to that experiential piece. And when you're learning outdoors, you're being a lot more creative. I mean, I don't know if you know anything about the fire school curriculum, but it's 
absolutely phenomenal. And teach, uh, students are learning exactly what they were learning when they were sitting in a classroom with the chalk and talk. Because we have kids that are academic and we have kids that are creative. So does the curriculum as it stands, does the traditional curriculum serve them and serve future change makers? So there's a new curriculum coming out and the NCCA is really drawing in and looking for supports from teachers and schools across the board to uh, consult in terms of the new curriculum. And the new curriculum, while they are, you know, advocating for what it is that needs to be covered per se in terms of time, they're releasing far more time to schools. So we're moving away from this notion that there's a one size fits all. And I think this is really, really, really key. Because when you look at the traditional curriculum or what traditional school advocated for, it was literacy and numeracy, right? And if you did not uh, perform well in literacy and numeracy, then you weren't able to learn off X, Y, and Z, and then you weren't able to do an elite. We all know the damage that that has caused, how much exclusion has been caused by that, and also how students, uh, you know, when you hear what people, what students have to say about their school experience and about the leaving cert, like it would make the hair stand up in the back of your neck. Like it's not, it's not fair on students anymore. So what they're doing is they're starting to release more agency and autonomy to schools to work for themselves. And I'm bringing back to that lovely phrase, culturally responsive leadership and practice. So you look at the needs of your students. So it's giving teachers and, and principals the autonomy and the leadership to look at what your students need and to address it at a local level. And I think that's really important. And there's a very interesting, I don't know, have you heard of Dal Nanog? Uh, so Dal Nanog is a consultative forum and it was set up by the National Children's Strategy and to, to set up a children's parliament and uh, where they bring students together to participate and to identify their priorities. And they meet once a year and they did this massive study uh, called How is School Today? Uh, over 3,000 uh, post-primary students. And of those 3,000 post-primary students, 3% of the students identified as other, which I think is really, really important to recognise, particularly when we look at gender diversity in schools and representation and how we support it from a mental health perspective and curriculum perspective. But they said very, very interesting things about their school experience. Um, they found lessons boring. Uh, they found the worst they found were maths, uh, English and Irish. Uh, only 30% felt that their teachers made their lessons interesting and very low percentage felt that they had a voice in school. And it's now time to start looking at what the real issues are being presented to everyone across the board in society and looking at spaces that children spend significant amounts of time in and what it is that can be done within that to prevent issues, to educate around issues, to have an openness around it and a conversation around it. Because we can't go back to this idea of sweeping things under the carpet because things will be all right and it'll all be fine and it won't happen to me. We all know that that's not the case. And we all know that the time is now to look in and around that. And very key people to do that are teachers. And teachers, you know, and, I, and I'm very, very aware that it's very unfair to expect schools to be the answer to absolutely everything. And that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that we need to start now the process of engaging with the explicit and implicit actions, uh, cultures that we're creating in which we uh, we in 10 and 15 years will see a very, very different education system where, you know, we're not drawn back with still talking about the fact that school is boring. It's not addressing the issues of the world when we know 
the fundamental role school plays in broader society and the amount of time students spend in there and what can be done. And you're sharing knowledge and building community and coming together. And I certainly think that's part of the answer and something that you're very strong on that I think is interesting on a societal level is breaking down the us and them mentality, not only when it comes to equality, but also when it comes to a hierarchy of power. And quite often in our education system, traditionally, there would have been um, that that hierarchy and students would not have felt that they could have a voice. And I think that is so important when it comes to making change, that it's not just about the people at the top, that we're all part of it through the way we move through the world, to the opinions that we hold and that we should be empowered by this knowledge. And I really hope that we continue to break down the us and them mentality on a global scale. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you go into schools, I often say, I don't want to know who the principal is, or it should be evident that, um, or shouldn't be evident who the principal is. Because if the school is really working, looking at power dynamics, and again, this is something that's very evident when you're looking at education and equality, and it's not so much even who has the power, but it's about how power is exercised, you know, and if you have hierarchies and othering, then it all brings back to who or what is valued, you know. And if we are looking at egalitarianism and we are looking at a diverse society, then there, everybody holds the power. Everybody is valued and power isn't exercised in those kind of negative ways. And it's kind of an innate desire that people have. And it's very much evident, you know, in playgrounds and amongst children. And that's why there has to be a deep understanding of children's worlds, because what's happening in children's worlds right here and right now is extremely important to them. And a lot of the power dynamics are played out, for example, in the playground, which is why it's extremely important to address issues like bullying address issues like racism, address issues like diversity, address those big key issues that are happening very much in real time in children's lives where one is exercising power over the other. And a way to role model that is how power is exercised in the school. So it's a mindset shift and change, you know, so we could, and it's going back to this again, you know, we can all say the right things, but what it is that we're doing and it's the action in and around it that makes the change. Because often if you look at our deep rooted biases and inhibitions, they're often come from the ethos of the school or how it is we were taught ourselves. There's a real uh, parallel school of thought going on at the moment. On the one hand, we have major issues that are really quite scary at times, particularly when you look at children and you wonder what future they're going to have. But also, as you've touched on, there's a very exciting momentum of hope at the moment. Um, whether that's through the the technologies and the sharing of information, which I know can be a double edged sword, but also this this feeling in people. And I know it, it's gotten a little overused, the term woke, and and it's it's come to to lose its value in, in many ways as, as people scoff at it. But people are more engaged than ever before. And I suppose that, that that's only a, a positive thing. How do you suggest we talk to children about change, be them in our own families or, you know, our, our friends, families, the children that we are around? What do you think we should mention to them when we're trying to help this culture of hope? 
Yeah, and I, I find this really interesting because I grappled with the word change maker initially because I felt a little bit that it was putting an awful lot of responsibility on children, that they felt that they had to go out and change the world. And as far as they were concerned, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the world, you know. And there is um, there there is a very fine balance uh, in the sense that children have a right to a childhood. And they have a right to a childhood for as long as they want to have a childhood in that sense. And when I say childhood, is that how they're exposed to issues that might incite anxiety. And we have to be extremely careful about how we do that and what we say and how we speak to children, because that's the last thing that you want to do uh, in any sort of sense. But it's about empowerment and agency. So if you look at the Me Too movement, if you look at... um the issue of gender violence, if you look at uh, the marriage referendum, if you look at any of the deep sense campaigns that happened in Ireland and you look at the momentum that was created in the country around driving that change, that's a pent up drive that was in all of us from when we were really, really young around a desire for something that we knew what was wrong. But it also incites these, and you know, encourages these other conversations about other issues, about other human rights issues that are going on. But we move away from this notion that one of these fine days, the penny will drop with children and they will have a voice or they will have an understanding of the climate or they will have an understanding of these skills that we know that they will need as we progress and change our world. That's not the way it is. And that's the huge philosophy of our programme. So we encourage and I say to my schools, what does it look like for a five year old coming into your school, going to Changemaker School? And what will a sixth class student say leaving the Changemaker School? And what, it is, what do you want them to say and think? And how do you want them to have lived their school experience? You know, this is a complex area. Children and their rights and their rights, their human rights have to be respected and supported. And it's the adults that need to decide what it is the right thing that is that what is the right thing to do. But openness conversation directing in the correct way treating their worlds and what it is that they have to say with the utmost respect and listening and really listening and particularly listening to hidden voices and you know children that would attend ASD classes or children that might have particular difficulties or how do we encourage the voice of all and an openness and awareness around all of that what I would say to parents is it's about your everyday actions if you really believe this then how do you when there's things happening at home, when you see something, telling your children they're powerful, giving them the agency around things, talking to them, not talking down to them, giving them responsibility, doing things as simple as, you know, if you're painting, you know, getting them involved in different things that are happening in the house, if you're making decisions about different things, if you're making decisions about where people want to go and things like that, having conversations around everything. Um, I remember when we when I was looking at the Changemaker Schools first and they had kind of a tagline, you know, everyone a change maker and working towards the common good. And I felt that was very marginalizing for our students because how dare we expect our students to work for the common good and address climate change when the reality is, is that their everyday lives are extremely, extremely challenging. So we brought it back to their community. So, you know, simple things, you know, not throwing litter not graffitiing walls, having respect for your environment. We used to work on initiatives with Sulla's projects in the inner city about building window boxes, about improving the environment. So when we're looking at being a change maker and changing the world, for some it is going out there and looking at the likes of Greta Thunberg and looking at very 
big, bigger, broader issues because they have the space, because all their needs are met. For others, it's a different way of looking at changing the world. It's It could be on your own doorstep. It could be in your school. But it's an identity. And it's an identity of empowerment. And what I used to, I used to really, really uh, feel very empowered and proud myself when I used to see our sixth class students graduating. And we used to have massive graduation and they used to have the robes and everything. We've had the Minister for Education and everything. It was a very, very important uh, time, transition time in the school year. But when I would see students graduating as change makers, I am a change maker because of X, Y, and Z. And it was very much often we raised 200 euro for charity, which is a massive amount of money, or we organized a cleanup of our area to fundraise for a local bin, this kind of thing, and very targeted responses. But we were giving our students the power to know that the changes that they made there made a difference to the world. And that's a blueprint for them going forward in whatever way that might be. And it can be as big or as small. And what is big and what is small? There is no right and wrong. There is no better change making practices or skills. There is no one size fits all. It's about a culture and a responsive culture. And how do we articulate that? And that's why schools are such an excellent space there because schools are so relational. And if you have an envelope around common themes and common themes where, again, going back to this education as a space for transformation and to improve people's lives, then it can only but work. Why wouldn't it work? I champion your enthusiasm. I love it. <laughs> Fiona Collins, Network Coordinator of the DCU Changemaker Schools Network. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.